Hello and welcome to another episode of Riding Unicorns, the podcast about growth startups. I'm James Pringle and my co-host is Hector Mason from Episode One Ventures. This week we're delighted to have Georgia Stewart, co-founder of Tumulo on. Tumulo helps investment and pension platforms transform ESG into positive retention, acquisition and brand opportunities. They're at the cutting edge of finance and sustainability, so it's going to be a really great conversation. Without further ado, let's bring in Georgia. So welcome to Riding Unicorns, Georgia. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, James. It's good to be here. Awesome. So maybe you could just start by giving us your background, career today, and how you started Tumalo. Okay, so I, I went to Cambridge, I studied natural sciences, and within that, I focused on conservation and climate change. So I'm super passionate about sustainability and the role that finance has to play in that conversation, or I guess in the sustainable transition. When I was at uni, we were part of this campaign called Positive Investment Cambridge, and it was all about getting the university to be a more proactive shareholder. So Cambridge as a uni has got £6 billion invested into the stock market, and we were trying to make sure that they knew where that money was being invested, i.e. which companies were they buying shares in, and that once they were invested in those companies, they were being a responsible shareholder because companies answer to their shareholders. And so if you're a shareholder, you have an opportunity to influence change on issues like climate change or human rights or gender equality. And so we were working really closely with the uni to get them to do that. And when we then left university, me and my two co-founders, Ben and Will, set up Tomello to give that opportunity to individual investors, people who are invested through their pensions, although they may not know it, and people who are invested um, as retail investors through investment apps or through financial advisors, etc. Basically, money is power, but at the moment, people who have money are not super empowered, and that's what we're trying to change. Awesome. And how long have you guys been going now? So we've been running Tomato for three years. We um, had a couple of pivots along the way, although obviously it's always been very sustainable investment focused. And we actually launched our first product in June last year. So we launched with a trial with Legal and General, which is now a long-term partnership. So we've been in the market for about a year. Awesome. And did you know that you were going to be a founder when you went to university? Do you have anyone in your family who's like founded a business in the past? Well, no, the answer to that is no. I wanted to be a vet and I went to uni to do biology thinking I might apply to vet or medicine afterwards. I couldn't decide, hence I did biology. But then I got really swept away in the whole climate change debate, as one does. Obviously, it's a very important issue, so I was super passionate about that. Ended up knowing that I'd definitely focus on sustainability and... I guess through the uni campaign, it just became apparent that this was a massive problem and it's a trillion pound industry. And there's just a lot of people that are very clueless as to the power that they could have with their money. And, and we saw an opportunity to change that from a mission perspective, but also that that could be business opportunity as well. And then in terms of entrepreneurs in the family and my dad's side, they're all entrepreneurs, but it's very different. Like my dad runs a marquee company you know like the white tents for weddings and stuff my uncles have a self-storage business and so it's, it's a different type of business but they're all entrepreneurs i had a look at your linkedin earlier on and it looked like you sort of had a go or thought about dabbling with corporate life a few times and then looks like you settled for being an entrepreneur pretty quickly <laughs> is that the case yeah i mean i did do internships in asset management actually mostly that was because when i joined the campaign at uni everyone was like a phd studying climate finance and decarbonization and stuff that i really didn't understand 
And I was so fed up of not understanding anything in our Monday night meetings that I thought, oh, well, I should go and do an internship in asset management. And that became three internships in asset management. But yeah, I think it was quite obvious that while that's quite an interesting space, I kind of wanted to create change in that industry rather than be in the industry itself. If anyone's looking at their own portfolio and thinking about ESG as a filter on what they invest in, what are like the big things to avoid at the moment? So there's two parts to investing for me, and there's been a lot of focus on the first and not nearly enough focus on the second. So when you're talking about ESG, like environmental, social governance investing, it's seemingly all about asset allocation. So it's like, where are you going to put your money and where are you not going to put your money? So you're going to avoid fossil fuels and avoid arms companies and avoid companies that treat their laborers badly. And you're going to invest in companies that are doing good things over the world, like renewables or circular economy type businesses, for example. But after you've put your money into a business, people kind of forget that as a shareholder, you have all this power and that it's called stewardship. And it goes on on a kind of massive scale. So big asset managers like BlackRock and Vanguard who have trillions of pounds invested in these companies on behalf of all the tiny investors who put their money in the first place. Those asset managers are making decisions or are forcing companies to make decisions on really important issues. So I think if you're looking yourself to get invested in ESG funds, you want to be invested in with an asset manager who understands the importance of stewardship and is going to like back your values when it comes to voting on climate change at fossil fuel companies or gender equality at tech companies or whatever the issue that's close to your heart might be. And the trouble is, it's kind of hard to work that out. At the moment, there's so little transparency about where a fund manager is investing or how they're voting. I mean, that's what Tamela does. So that's the problem we're trying to solve. But at the moment, it's still quite difficult. Very cool. So you're giving the power to the people. It kind of sounds like a B2B2C model, I think I'm right in saying. So it'd be good to hear in your words what the model is and who you actually charge for your service. Yeah, so that's exactly right. It, we're B2B2C. So we basically provide APIs to investment platforms and pension platforms so that they can give transparency to their end consumers their investors who are pension members or retail investors investing through an ISA, for example, or workplace pension. So what our technology allows is for that end investor to see which companies are inside any of the funds that they've chosen to put their money in or that their money has been put in for them if it was a pension. And not only that, but also to have a voice on the environmental and social issues that those companies are facing. So if you're invested in Tesla, then Tomello's tech means you'll get a notification in your investment app saying, hey, Tesla's AGM's coming up at the end of October. There's a human rights vote. What do you think should happen as the investor in Tesla? We take your opinion and we feed it through to the people who are actually voting on that AGM so that they can take your values into account. So it basically means that you can be like a mini activist investor within your investment app um, and have much more control and transparency about where your money is going and how it's being used to influence change. And do you find that the fund managers, asset managers listen to the, the voices of these people? Have you got some examples of where these votes have led to change? Yeah, so that's definitely changing. I mean, that's part of I guess our challenge as a company is not just to create the tech, but also to change the narrative and change mindsets, which is quite a lot to bite off, especially when you're tackling an industry that, you know, most people we're talking to about changing the way they do things have been in their role for like 30 years. So there are some pretty interesting conversations, but sure, we have asset managers on our kind of partnership books, 
like Legal and General Investment Management, for example, and Aviva investors who are thinking super progressively about the role that the underlying investor, the person who actually puts the money in, should play in that conversation. And they're absolutely listening to, you know, what are the priorities of our investors? Do they care more about climate change or is it animal welfare or is it healthcare or gender? And how does that change across demographic of customer and the different companies that they might be focused on? So they're using that in their own stewardship processes and conversations. And there are definitely votes like in October last year, Procter & Gamble, who make like bounty um, paper towels and other like household products, they had a vote on deforestation in their supply chain. And that was the first time that a fund manager like BlackRock, for example, had voted pro a deforestation issue. And it's the first time a vote like that passed. And that's really due to pressure from underlying retail investors and pension members who are just putting much more focus on this, finally. So, yeah, I would definitely say that it's changing and fast. Like We've only been in the market for a year and we've got maybe 14 investment platforms as customers. And in asset management, like it's quite a revolutionary concept. Things don't necessarily change that fast around here. So, yeah, it's been, it's been really great progress, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a really powerful thing because there are like two parts to it. One, I guess, is that the asset managers can use this as, as a way to sell basically to more customers because it's like we've got a better product than our competitors in a way you actually get a say in the companies we're investing you in but then there's also the part which is like these companies if they truly are ESG focused then they should want to do that themselves so what what do you hear from these asset managers around do you think it's sort of lip service do you think it's a tool to get more customers or do you think it's because these people really actually care about making positive change I think it depends on the asset manager, but most asset managers care about making positive change. I mean, they're they're humans at the end of the day and they have grandchildren and all the other fears that we have around climate change and gender diversity or whatever issues are close to your heart. There's also a theory called universal owner theory, which suggests that like legal in general and BlackRock and Vanguard have got so much money invested in the system that actually the only way they can do well is by the system doing well, which means that we need positive change. It's not like they can hedge their bets by investing in renewables only. They've got so much wealth, they have to invest across the entire spectrum, both in fossil fuel companies and renewable companies. So unless everyone moves in a positive direction, they're going to always be kind of netting themselves off, if that makes sense. So for many reasons, I do think asset managers care. I think, though, that like ESG companies, what is an ESG company? That's where the problem with ESG is. It's like there's not an ethical company. You can have companies that have purposes at their core, which I think is great, and all companies should have a social environmental purpose, but they can't tick all boxes. Like Some people will think Tesla's fantastic, but other people will have take major issue with their supply chain and how they deal with precious minerals. Other people, obviously, Amazon has revolutionized technology and access um, to goods, but there's other issues like data and tax and infrastructure and delivery. And that goes on and on and on. So I think, you know, we can have an ESG fund, but there's always going to be areas which we think are more important. And we've seen that with COVID as well. Like climate change was on top of the agenda and thankfully still is at the top of the agenda but healthcare and like workers rights has just risen massively up the agenda in the last year whereas that wasn't really something that got talked about that much surprise surprise two years ago and as a founder you've now got a bigger and bigger team and how have you found hiring and how much does having a sort of positive impact help with attracting the right talent 
yeah, hiring is just so difficult, especially now for some reason. I don't know why, but I mean, we've got a great team. We've got 25 people based in Bristol, but pretty, it's pretty flexible, remote. We're having a first kind of everyone in the office day on Thursday, which will be so fun. But hiring is a kind of ongoing challenge, trying to find amazing people, but it would definitely help by the fact that it's positive change. Like we've got loads of people that are looking for the for roles and are interested in the roles. It's just about finding people that fit the culture and are going to bring something special to the team and you know, have the skills and going to push us forward as I guess everyone's struggling with that same challenge. But having a positive angle definitely, definitely helps. I think that mission-driven element is so valuable and it's almost like a flywheel where the more we become aware of these things the more amazing people want to join companies who are making a positive impact so hopefully the more incentive there is for the best people to join those companies I think it's a cool flywheel potentially yeah no 100% and especially now everyone wants to get into sustainable finance as well I guess it's like the one area of sustainability where you can actually expect to be paid well it feels like it's a really nice conference between finance and sustainability so yeah for that reason we're not I guess short of applicants it's just a question of finding great people and and I agree that having that mission is critically important and now especially we've got students coming out of university who have spent three years campaigning for divestment and are super passionate about these issues so when we meet people like that it's amazing because you know, we don't have to tell them anything. They already know exactly what we're about and they're ready to hit the ground running and they come with all these ideas. So that's really exciting, to be honest. And what's one thing that you do now in your hiring process that you didn't at the beginning that you've kind of learned and you would recommend other founders do? Gosh, our hiring process is constantly evolving. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Maybe to constantly evolve the hiring process. Yeah, let's go with that. So we have like a single person, Laura Queen, is coordinating hiring with the help of automated system. But it's quite decentralized. So a lot of the team get involved in hiring, like brand new grads and, and people that have been here since the beginning. And then I tend to meet everyone during the hiring process at some point or other. But it's not like I'm doing all the hiring anymore, which is great. So that's one of the hard things about being a founder is that at some point you have to relinquish control to the people around you. How, how do you think about doing that in terms of, you know, mentioned meeting every person at some stage who's going to join Tomello? How do you think about giving that up and, and actually starting to see people roaming the office who you haven't met? We're not there yet. I mean, we're only 25 people, so it's really realistic that, you know, a team can recommend someone and I can meet them. But... We've always put loads of work as a mission-driven organisation, you might expect it, but we've always put loads of work into like values and mission and vision and why we're doing what we're doing and make sure we only hire people that really care why we're doing what we're doing. And that then really comes back to help you because obviously I trust that people doing the hiring are not just trying to get bum on a seat. They want people in the team who are going to help them drive it forward and their hiring is a reflection of the values that we've created together and I don't really see that they would do the hiring process any differently than I might. I mean, they might see different things in someone, which is the whole point. But I guess we have a process and we, we know what's important to us. So, yeah, I'm not too worried about that. I think as a team, actually, we are quite, it's quite autonomous and like, people are quite empowered, or at least I would hope that that's the case. And you've raised a couple of funding rounds. So how did you approach that? And am I right in thinking you've got a famous investor? And how did that come about? <laughs> Yeah, that was always what gets reported. My auntie gets really annoyed because she put in like 5K and she never gets mentioned in the newspapers. But like, yes, we have, that was a shout out to you, Karen, if you're going to play that. We have raised three rounds of funding. 
So we raised a pre-seed round when we were straight out of uni and then we raised 900k angel round and then we raised last November another round of funding from our angels and one other guy called Jeremy Collar who's a very established private equity investor. I guess, are you referring to Peter Gabriel? Is that who you're referring to? Yeah, Yeah, he is one of our investors. He actually lives in Box, which is just outside Bath, which is where we were originally based. So I think someone connected me to him over email and that's how it was quite cool going to the studios to have that conversation. One minute there, a private equity investor thought that he was being called a rock star by you. I'm sure he was celebrating. Yeah, well, they're actually (laughs) very good friends. So I guess when you said money and like, we came out of uni knowing absolutely no one. The idea of fundraising was so daunting. And then I realised it's just all about the network. And we found one guy, Matt Pennycard, if people know him, introduced us to some of his network, who introduced us to their network. And yeah, Peter Gabriel introduced me to Jeremy Collar, who ended up investing a million pounds in November last year. So yeah, it really is all about the network and telling people what you're passionate about and why and finding people. Also LinkedIn, like in our second fundraise, we use LinkedIn heavily and that really worked as well towards the end when we kind of already had a lot of money secured. What what do you use um, LinkedIn for? How did that work for you? I literally just looked up people who were established in fintech or in the space that we needed to be in and a user of psychology, like things that we were interested in. And then messaged them and said, hi, would you like to invest? And then people did. That was great. We found some really good investors that way. Like people who have gone on to add significant value and our advisors and we're much closer to them than some of the investors that we kind of have known for much longer. So yeah, I would definitely say to people to try and take advantage of LinkedIn. Yeah, I think it's really underutilized. And we've made an investment as episode one into a company from cold outreach on LinkedIn where the guy had found basically a bunch of people with investor in their profile who'd done the same university course as him, of which there were many because it was PP at Oxford. Um, It also just shows some good hustle, but any of the listeners who are founders should definitely make good use of LinkedIn search tools and sales navigator as well, which is another LinkedIn tool, which can be useful for that. Yeah, we had two approaches, me and my co-founder split up. This was like for the last 200k of a million pound race. So I wouldn't recommend maybe starting from scratch on LinkedIn could take a while, but Will had the scattergun approach where he just messaged everyone and anyone. And I like found targeted investors. I think both of them came up. And then what's next for Tumelo? What's the big vision? What are your plans over the next kind of 12 to 24 months? 12 to 24 months, I guess. From that perspective, it's more the same. Sell more, get more users onboarded, grow to the US, just keep expanding. Long term, I mean... Over the next 10 years, our mission is to you know, give every investor their shareholder rights, whether they're invested through a fund, whether they're invested directly, they should be empowered to know where their money is and to have a say and potentially other shareholder rights, which they also don't have access to. And there is kind of a room of them out there. So, yeah, I guess that's kind of 12 months feels quite short term. We've got a lot to do and there's a lot of people in the world. So, <laughs> yeah, that's the long term plan. For me, and, and probably James, you're the same, as investors, I think we've seen just so much more climate in particular focused tech over the last 12 months, even. But certainly ESG, it's just so front and centre at the moment, which is fantastic. But interested speaking to you to hear whether since you've started, have you noticed change? Have you noticed that kind of momentum getting behind ESG? 
and have conversations with investors become easier, conversations with customers, prospective customers? Yes. I think conversations with customers for us are great, especially when we can find people inside who are kind of evangelists for the product. I mean, it's hard to argue against giving people transparency and a voice when it's their money going into the system. So generally, we can find people that really back what we do. And our customers are really aligned from a mission perspective, all of them, I would say. So that's never really been a challenge. And I think that's only going to accelerate. Probably our biggest problem at the moment is just delivering to customers. It's not really a customer challenge. So I think from that perspective, it's great. From the perspective of investors, yeah, like certainly we have a lot of interest. And and I don't know whether that's because of what we're doing or because we're no longer a tiny baby company that everyone's kind of terrified to put money in. So (laughs) it's probably a combination of both. We've kind of proven that we can deliver on the things that we say we will. So I guess that also helps with the investment side of things. And yeah, there's a lot more climate startups, but I think there needs to be more focus on stewardship. I sound like a broken record, but I think this idea of analysing stocks and working out where to put money or not is only going to take us so far. I think something like 40% of the world's assets, maybe more, are ESG assets. But if that much money was really in ESG and doing good, then we wouldn't have the problem that we currently do. So there's something missing there about follow through or, 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 or whatever it is that needs to be picked up on. This can't be a marketing game. And obviously this is business, but it's also more than that. You know, COP26, the third goal is mobilise finance. And unless we do that, we honestly have no hope of reaching any of the IPCC recommendations for 1.5 degrees, even if that is still possible. So there's a lot to be done. Yeah, really interesting. I've got a question around when you sort of became a tech company. So obviously, whilst you were studying, you were putting pressure on your own university to kind of look at this more seriously. At what point when you founded the business, did you think, right, we're going to take a tech angle, going to go down an API route, we're going to sell software. And how did you make that transition? I think one of your team is the tech co-founder. So was he always involved? Like, how did that process happen? Yeah, so it was always the three of us, which helped because I wouldn't have the foggiest as to how to build a tech company if it wasn't for Ben and Will. We've been through a couple of pivots. We started off trying to solve this problem by building the entire chain. So we were like, okay, we want to give people shareholder voting. Let's build an investing app. So we built a robo-advisor, went through the FCA, had real customers investing, were showing them where their money was, had this plan to build in shareholder rights, like shareholder voting. And then we thought, actually, we might be trying to do too much. And rather than actually build the platform itself, why don't we just take this transparency and voting to all the other platforms that exist out there? Because there's already millions of customers sitting on them that don't have any of these rights. And it's going to take us an awful long time to take over the market from an investing app side. So we had a chat to Aviva about that. And they said, yeah, let's try it. And then we scrambled for like three weeks to separate our products so that we could just give them the kind of voting and transparency piece, which we did. It worked really well. And then we kind of kept the app for like six months. Like, do we, don't we? Obviously, there was kind of a lot of heart and and effort had gone into it. But then in the end, we were like, you know what? Let's, we really believe in this. So let's just push that as a software play at the time. But now we were super focused on the data, like the interface and the APIs are really just a delivery mechanism for passing data through from underlying investor to fund manager. And eventually I think to the end company directly. Do you guys do anything to measure the impact that you're making? Are there any statistics around, you know, we've got X number of people voting on X number of matters and X percentage of those are reaching a sort of AGM 
level chats. Yeah, so we can do that. We've got obviously the number of people that are seeing what companies are in their portfolio, which in and of itself, I think has impact on the asset allocation side, because we can see people using our software to analyze their own fund and then work out where else they might be putting their money and trying to move their money essentially off the back of that. So that's one aspect of impact in and of itself, more on the kind of ESG asset allocation route. And then further from that, we can see how fund managers have historically voted and then see how they voted as a result of understanding the member preferences. So that's what we call them, our vote preferences from underlying investors. So we have got a dashboard where we can see, okay, what was the vote preference? How have our various fund managers voted on these issues? And how does that change over time? There's not really a way for us to say, okay, because these people voted this, this is why the fund manager voted for deforestation. But we have dialogue with the fund managers. So anecdotally, we do know that they are taking the vote preference into account and that they're having conversations off the back of it. And I guess through our interface that we built for Aviva and Legal General and the other customers who, who can't take our APIs directly, we've done other cool features where we've said, okay, your fund manager's meeting BP next week, what do you guys want to ask BP? And so that question's been taken from the fund manager, taken to BP and the answer put back into the platform. So again, there's kind of a mechanism where actually underlying investors are speaking directly to companies, albeit through quite a convoluted channel, but they don't know that and the conversation is being had. And eventually the plan is actually, how can we make that much more direct? I love the crowdsourcing of wisdom, Um, not only in investment, but in everything. Yeah, that's awesome. So Georgia, we always end these conversations with asking our guests if they could have three people for a dinner, who would they be? They can be dead or alive. Mm. We've had... Okay, I think I've got it. It's not tech related really, but I think if I was having three people over for dinner, just at least based on the conversation from today, I would like to have Jane Goodall and Michael O'Leary and Exxon chairman because i feel like that would be a great conversation to be a spectator on he's gonna get thrilling isn't he yeah i just don't know what he would say i'm so intrigued yeah (laughs) yeah i'd like to be a spectator of that dinner yeah the the exxon mobile chairman is a guy called darren woods (laughs) so he's in he's in for quite the evening it seems (laughs) yeah sorry darren to be fair you could replace him with like glencore or anyone else i'd be i'd be just as interested yeah, yeah. Awesome. You've got three points there for three unique people, which is awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. I've learned quite a lot, actually, about the importance of pension money within the overall fight against climate change. And it's great to hear you're writing unicorn story and tips around hiring and things like that. So thanks very much for doing a recording with us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to Riding Unicorns. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. If you want to receive episodes direct to your inbox, go to ridingunicorns.substack.com and subscribe on there as well. Next week, we have Jeremy King from Attest. Great episode, so look out for that one. See you next time.